Oh, I thought it was the one she wrote. I was about to, wow, that was amazing. That was powerful. That was powerful. Um, Okay, so we're starting a brand new series uh, today, and the series is called Questions and Reasons. And we are uh, starting it today. It will take us about two and a half months to get through this series. And we are fir- the first part of the series will be about questions. These are questions that keep people from belief, from believing in God. And the second part will be looking at reasons for belief. And so here's some of the questions we're going to cover in the first part of the series. Here's some questions. Can there, how can there be just one true religion? How can a good God allow suffering? Isn't Christianity a straitjacket? Which, by the way, I, I somehow conned my wife into doing that sermon, the third one. So it's... My wife's going to do one of these. It's going to be awesome. Isn't the church responsible for injustice? And then the second part is how can a loving God send people to hell? Hasn't science disproven Christianity? And can we really trust the Bible? Then the second part of the series will be on reasons for belief, looking at the clues of God, the problem of sin, religion, and the gospel, and the cross, and the resurrection. So today is an introduction. This is on the topic of doubt. We're talking about honest doubt today, just introducing the whole series. And I get a lot of parents or or people that will ask me questions like, you know, many, why do all these high school students, when they leave high school, walk away from their faith when they get to college? And I usually reply, it doesn't just happen when they go to college, it happens when they're still in high school. I tell people that ask me that question, I say, it usually happens like sophomore, junior year. And, and I see so many students that come in, they come in as freshmen, they have sort of, they're still in that junior high mindset to a certain extent, then they kind of get in the middle of high school. And usually by sophomore, junior year, many of you have decided who you're going to be about, who you're going to follow, and what you're going to believe. Now, there are some that trail off when they get to college, that happens as well. But I see it happen when they are still in high school. So we, we try to make this a place where these things are discussed while you're still here, and not just assuming it's going to happen when you get, get to college. Um, I think if, if you were to ask why, why does this happen, I would tell you that it happens because usually based on how they handle doubt. When they start to have doubts and questions, how do they handle those things? And this is what often leads to them checking out either in high school or beyond. And so if you know, if you know anybody at school, or if maybe you are this kind of person, if, if you're the person that is the skeptic, if you're the person that's the doubter, that questions everything, this kind of person is often perceived as the smartest person in the room. It may not be true, but at least seems that way. If you have any friends that just will question everything when it comes to religion, faith, and belief, um, they just poke holes in everything. That person can come across as the smartest, most intelligent person in the room. And they're often, they often are very, very intelligent. And it can be very intimidating, wondering, how do I begin to reach this person? And, and so it can be very, a very intimidating thing to confront those kinds of things. And it's not just people like atheists, agnostics, skeptics that have doubts and questions. I think Doubts and questions are alive and well in the church, among God's people, among Christians. And so this series is not just, you know, how do you argue for your faith out there? This series is for you, because I know that you have these questions. These are not just questions for someone else. They're questions for us here in this room. 
the encouraging thing, even the great C.S. Lewis had lots and lots of doubts. He says this, when I pray, I wonder if I am not posting letters to a non-existent address. Mind you, I don't think so. The whole of my reasonable mind is convinced, but I often feel so. So this guy who, C.S. Lewis used to be an atheist at one point in his life, and began exploring and, and, and his doubts and questions, and he actually became a Christian through that. But we should take comfort knowing that someone like C.S. Lewis, as smart, as intelligent as he was, one of the smartest Christians to ever live, still experienced great doubt. And I think the statement he says points to a couple of things. I think we could say there are three main barriers to faith. The first is intellectual, what we think. This series will deal mainly with this, this first one, intellectual doubts that many, question, many of us have, questions that we have. The second is personal, what we feel. Many of you have experienced things in life already, even at your young age, that are pretty horrific and pretty terrible. And people that were supposed to be guards and protectors and people that point you to Christ or point you to belief and faith have been people that have they've detracted from it for you because of how they've behaved. You've had people let you down. People in authority let you down. And you can't trust people. And so by your experience, you feel like, well, I, they say they believe this, and then they did this. How do I make sense of that? And so you have this very personal, what you feel, doubt. And then lastly, there's social, who we associate with. You and I often adopt the belief systems of those we most closely associate with. And this is why community is so important. Now listen, I'm not saying today that you should not have um, unbelieving friends. You should have friends that are not believers. But I will tell you that if the main core circle of your friends are unbelievers and you're the only believer, you should be trying to reach them with the gospel. But what often happens is if you don't have community, like with other believers, you're probably going to be a casualty. Like you need people that are like-minded along with you to walk with you in your faith. And if you don't have that, if you're the only one and you stay in that place, and that's your only community is, is other unbelievers, then you most likely will end up falling into whatever they say they believe. There is this huge social pressure to conform to what they think is correct and right. So how does doubt begin? Here's how I think it happens for, for many of us. So how many of you were taught at a very early age to believe in Santa Claus? Raise your hand. It's okay. You, most parents teach their kids this. Raise your hand. You were taught to believe in Santa Claus. How many of you were taught not to? Raise your hand. Oh, you party poopers. Now, how many of you just kind of figured it out on your own? Like, you just, your parents taught it to you as, as reality, but you just, like, discovered one day it's not true. You just figured it out on your own. How many of your parents sat you down at one point and spilled the beans and had to explain to you that it's not the big reveal? How many of you had that conversation with your parents? A few of you. Did you cry? You did not cry. All right. So recently... A couple of years ago, I was telling a story in the main service, in a sermon up there, and I said this statement, 
you know, Santa's a hoax, like to the crowd. And after the service, a mom approached me and said, she says, hey, I just thought you should know that there are like young kids in this audience and some parents still teach our kids Santa Claus. And I was just like, really? Like, you think I'm going to edit my sermon for those little kids? Are you kidding me? No way. And so next service, I said the exact same thing all over again. And, uh, but here's the deal. You know, my mom's there in the back, and, and she was like one of those that, like from the early stage of life, she was like teaching me that Santa's not real, right? I think that was my first sentence I ever uttered was, she was teaching me like, say, say it, say it, Santa's not real, Santa's not real. And like she really taught me like from an early age, like it's, and her, and her thinking was, if I teach you something that's kind of a myth, then maybe you might think Christianity is a myth. And I sort of, yeah, that kind of makes sense, why she might think that. And so what happens, I think, for many of us is you're, you're taught in the church. You're often taught in the church. If, if you're raised up in the church, like many of you are, you're taught about Jesus from an early age. At the same time, you're taught about Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, and the Tooth Fairy. And then as you begin to discover that those things are not really the reality, you start to maybe wonder, like, well, wait a second. Like, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that sounds very mythical. And a lot of stuff in the Bible that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I wonder, how can I trust this? How can I believe this? So you start to drift away. And I want you to see how this intellectual, personal, and social doubt it can become this vicious cycle where you have, you have things that have happened to you, so you've got the personal doubt, the feelings, and then that feeds into the intellectual, like, I mean, how can a good God send someone to hell? Like, I just can't believe in a God like that. And you have all these questions, and then that one feeds that one, and then that feeds into your social, and you're like, well, my friends, I want to hang out with them, and they like to do this, this, and this, and why would I say no to that? And so you begin to see how these different doubts begin to just start a cycle, and they feed each other. And you just start to drift away and fall away. And it's not as if someone walked up and just explained everything to you in an argument. And you were like, yeah, that sounds right. I think I'll walk away from my faith. It doesn't happen that way. Again, the great C.S. Lewis once said that most often when someone walks away from their faith, it's just little by little by little by little. And they just kind of drift And I think that's actually what Satan wants. Because it's not some obvious aha moment. But it's a subtle drift. And something in you feels like, yeah, I think I still believe. But then the way that you're living, the way that you're truly believing, the way that you really live your life doesn't really reflect that. And you just begin to drift away. And it's just subtle and slow and gradual. And this is how it often happens for us. I want to give you this morning a, a new perspective on doubt. First of all, there are those with real faith have real doubts. If you're someone that does not have doubts, then I worry about you. I, I might even say that I'm not sure your faith is real if you don't have some doubts. So don't see faith and doubt at these polar extreme opposites. I think we can say there are people with real faith that have some real doubts. If you've never wrestled with your faith or asked hard questions, your faith is not going to grow. 
if you don't wrestle honestly with your doubts. And you will set yourself up for a future faith implosion. The second point is doubt produces depth. Doubt produces depth in your faith. Honest drought, honest drought, honest doubt can drive you deeper, can drive you deeper into your faith. There's this guy who said this quote. He said, if a man begins with certainty, he will end in doubts. But if he begins with doubts, he will end in certainty, says Francis Bacon, whose last name makes me very hungry. Someone out there is just, they're like, does someone say bacon? They just woke up just now. They're like, bacon? What? He's a philosopher, but he says, if a man begins with certainty, you'll end in doubts. But if you start with doubts, you actually end in more certainty. If you come to Christ pretending to be certain about everything, you're going to end up in doubts. But if you come to him and, I, and you're honest about your doubt, you're going to find, I think, more clarity and more certainty. One way this can play out, I think, in relationships. So I think I've told this story before. I'm not sure if I told it recently or not, but I'll tell it again. I told you before, my wife and I, we dated for, I think, four months at first. And then we broke up. Okay, correction. She broke up with me. I know it's hard to believe. I know. Um, but she did. And, and then the, the whole four months were actually broken up. I'm actually trying to, like, talk to her and have discussions, and it wasn't happening, right? And I was going to her house and, like, putting flowers on the car at the middle of the night, and it was getting real creepy. Like, it was not good. And, and so finally we start talking again, and we actually get back together, and, you know, because she repented. And so... We get back together, and uh, the rest is history, as they say. But we both, be, we, were, we were having doubts. I mean, really, she was having some, I was having some doubts, too, and she was having some doubts. And you could say that because we actually were honest about the doubt, even the relationship, that once we got back together, the relationship had been tested, and we were now more certain than ever that this is the person, this is the person that I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. It had been tested. Doubt led to certainty. You might say it like this, a relationship that has stood up against doubt is deeper than one where doubt was never allowed. The couples that scare me to death are the ones that come into my office and say, we never fight, we never have arguments, and I just want to say, then you're not real. Like, you're not being honest if you never have disagreements and arguments. That couple worries me more than the ones that says, yeah, we, we kind of get into it sometimes, and it's, it's tough. It's really tough sometimes. So doubt can drive us deeper. I think the same is true spiritually in our lives as well. Uh, third point, believers need to deal with the doubts of unbelievers. Now, you might not have the same doubts as other people, but you still need to deal with the questions we're going to talk about in the series because... You're going to have questions. You're going to have friends that have these questions. And one of the ways to love people really well is for you to understand their questions and know how to bring some answers and clarity to their questions. This is not just a series about how to argue with people. It's about how to love people well and love them towards the kingdom. Next point, every doubt is based on a leap of faith. And you might say, what? Like, what does that mean? How can doubt be based on faith? Listen, skeptics still have their own kind of faith. Every doubt comes with a set of beliefs. 
I'll show you an example. Take those who say there can't be just one true religion. Megan's going to cover that next Sunday. I'll ask you this question. Can you prove the truth of that statement? Can anyone prove to me that there can't be just one true religion? If you can't prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt, that means you're taking that statement in faith. Someone who says the statement is still taking the statement in faith, and they've got a set of beliefs that are behind their doubts. I just went to the Middle East about a month ago, and there is a mosque on every corner of that city. And if you were to walk up to someone in that country and say, there can't be just one true religion, they would say, why not? They believe it's Islam, of course. But they believe there's one true religion, and they believe it's theirs. So for someone over here to say there can't be just one true religion, you're taking that statement in faith. You can't prove that statement when you say that. What you're saying when you say that is you believe there, if there is a God, you're, you, you believe that then he wouldn't be exclusive. He would be like someone who lets all roads lead to God. And I would tell you that there's no time in history of humanity where God's ever revealed himself in that way and said, this is who I am. All roads lead to me. So when you say that, you're taking that statement in faith. The next idea, someone might say, I don't believe in Christianity because I can't accept moral absolutes. Everyone should determine truth for him or herself. Once again, this statement can't be proven. You're taking that statement in faith. And there's a set of beliefs behind someone that says this kind of statement. One writer sums it up this way. He says, how do you know your belief is true? It would be inconsistent to require more justification for Christian belief than you do for your own. But that is frequently what happens. In fairness, you must doubt your doubts. So this whole series is going to be about challenging you to doubt your doubts. Like, look at the questions and the beliefs behind the things that many of us hold true, like the statements I just read, and begin to doubt the beliefs that you hold that are behind those questions. And if you treated, if you treated your doubts and questions with the same intensity that you treat the Christian faith, you truly begin to doubt your doubts and begin to deconstruct them and realize, you know, maybe what I've thought is true isn't actually the case. He goes on to say, my thesis is that if you come to recognize the beliefs on which your doubts about Christianity are based, and if you seek as much proof for those beliefs as you seek from Christians for theirs, you'll discover that your doubts are not as solid as they first appeared. That's Tim Keller in the book Reason for God. So this series is all about this, like teaching you to doubt your doubts. And if I had one big point in this first section this morning, it would be this. Many of us think that the skeptic stands on this pillar of reason and logic and rationale, and then the Christians are like floating on a cloud of faith, is how we often imagine it. But I want to show you that every single person, whether they're a Christian, whether they're a skeptic, an agnostic, an atheist, 
Everyone is standing on a pedestal of faith. Everyone. There's no way around it. You cannot escape faith. So when you look with me, we're going to look at several uh, passages. First, Matthew 28. Go ahead and turn there. Matthew chapter 28. We'll start in verse 16 here in a minute. Here's the good news. Our doubts are not a surprise to God. God is not surprised by our doubts. And I think it's why we see stories of doubt all over the Bible. We see examples in the narrative of Scripture of people doubting and questioning the truthfulness of what's happening to them. God knew we were going to have doubts. So looking at, I want to show you three different types of doubt today. The first is doubt as hesitation. This is from Matthew 28, verse uh, 16 through 20. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, when you read that, you might recognize the famous part of that passage. And this is the Great Commission. This is when Jesus is standing on this mountain. These believers, these rock-solid believers come up this mountain. They see Jesus for the first time since the resurrection, and they're just blown away. Like, this is the risen Christ. We see the, the, the scars on his hands. We see the scar in his side. This is truly Jesus Christ resurrected, and their belief is confirmed. These are these rock-solid individuals, people of faith, and Jesus gets a real deep voice. It's a historical moment. He's going to give them the Great Commission. He says, you know, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And this is how we picture this scene. And what we forget is right before that, it says, there are many who walked up that mountain, and they saw him. And they doubted. And it says they questioned. They doubted. So here they see the resurrected Jesus, and they doubt, and they question. It says some worshiped him, some doubted. What you see happening here in the the passage is pretty amazing. We don't see Jesus, you know, split the crowd in two and go, you know what? All right, you people that are the worshipers, you guys over here, you doubters, JV, B-team people, you're over here, and I'm going to give the Great Commission to these people, the true worshipers of me. That's not what happens. He stands before the whole crowd, and he says, the Great Commission to everyone, this should give great encouragement to you, knowing that Jesus Christ gave the Great Commission to doubters. And in his grace and mercy, he gave them the same Great Commission. It's an amazing act of grace. The second kind of doubt that we see in the Bible is doubt as double-mindedness. This is from James chapter 4, verse 8, where it says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The word doubt's not here in the passage, but the word double-minded is. And, in fact, you can see in the word just double like, just the same root word. It's the same letters, right? And the word double-minded comes from the Greek word, disukos. 
Now, what word do you see in the word desukos? What word do you see there? Psycho, all right? I don't know how you feel about being called a psycho from the Bible, but that's what we just got called. But when we, we're double-minded, it means like we're, we're in two different minds. We're confused. But so often you and I are experiencing this kind of doubt. We're caught in the middle, and we see the same concept over in Romans where Paul speaks of the old self and the new self. And we're no longer under the reign of sin, but we often live like we are. And so this is an example of the same kind of idea. On the one hand, we want to obey God, but we keep falling into sin. And so we're these double-minded people. It's another way of thinking about the concept of doubt. Alistair McGrath says this statement, Doubt is a way in which God is able to deepen our faith by showing us our lack of faith. Wait, how, how does God deepen our faith by showing us our lack of faith? I thought those were polar opposites. Here's how, what I think he means. When you realize you don't have it all together, this is when you have to lean into the grace and mercy of Jesus. Because so often what you and I do is we think that we're saved by having this amazing, put-together, perfect faith. And when you realize that you just kind of have some feeble faith, but you're putting that faith in a perfect Savior, the perfection of Christ is the emphasis, not your perfect faith. So when you have some doubts and questions, it can actually lead to a deeper faith. As you're revealed that you at times lack faith, it can then increase and deepen your faith because you realize your faith is just this sort of human feeble thing, but it's placed into this perfect God, this perfect big God. And the emphasis is now on the glory of God, not on me and how I perform my faith. So it deepens our faith. Thirdly, doubt as a state of mind. This is John chapter 20, verse 27. Who's the most famous doubter in the Bible? Someone say Moses. I guess you could say Moses. Yeah, that's a good, that's, that's the Old Testament version of this guy. But Thomas was called what? Doubting Thomas. He got a nickname. Not sure if the disciples called him that, but we call him that today. Jesus says to Thomas after the resurrection, he says, put your finger here in his side. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. For some people, doubt is just a way of life. They're just known for it. They just question everything. Um, my wife would tell you that this is often me. I'm, I tend to be a cynic by nature. Sometimes there are people that will say, you know, the, the pessimist is, you know, the glass is half empty. The optimist is the glass is half full. And I'm like, the glass is empty. There's nothing in the glass, right, Sometimes. So I can tend to be a doubter and a questioner and a cynic, just like Thomas is. But here's where I find great encouragement, knowing that God wove doubters into the story like Thomas. Thomas was one of the 12. Just let that sink in for a minute. God could have written the story where the 12 disciples were these, like, amazing, solid, strong men who never questioned anything. And Thomas could have been in the story, but he could have been a peripheral figure. He could have been like a guy in the crowd. Who they, maybe they put a story in about him where he's just, he, he displays his doubt and questions, but gets put in his place. But no, that's not what God does. 
God puts Thomas, doubting Thomas, as one of the twelve. One of the twelve upon whom he would build the church. Do you know that history has said, I'm not sure if this is correct or not, but history has said they think Thomas went after the resurrection towards the east, towards parts of Asia, and spread the gospel there. And many would say that the church in India is a credit to Thomas and his mission to the east. And God used someone that was a doubter and a questioner. I also think it it points out a couple other things too. It shows how gracious God is that he would weave someone like this into the story. It also, we're also told that the early disciples were so, gaie, uh, so, so gullible and naive. We're told these are simple fishermen. How could um, we really trust what they say? Because these guys were simple-minded. They'd believe anything. And yet you see in the stories of the Bible, there's lots of questions, lots of doubts. These men had minds just like you have a mind. And they questioned many, many things. They questioned what their eyes were seeing. So so we can't say that it was just naive men believing whatever. Can't say that. And then lastly, I think God, he, he puts doubters in the story back then because he wants to reach doubters today. He wants to reach doubters today. So if you struggle with this kind of stuff, I mean, what do you do with this? Where do you go? if you struggle with this kind of doubt. I want you to see an example of what I'm talking about. This is a, a video of someone that you guys know pretty well, I think, and this is him sharing his story. Let's go ahead and watch this video. So I came to Christ probably around sixth grade, and so when I did that, it, was, it felt like it was a very simplistic faith. It wasn't very complicated. It wasn't that it wasn't authentic or real, but when I was in high school, I then started to face some deeper questions about my faith. The most significant one, I feel like, was, you know, how do I know everything in the Bible is true? And so I felt like in the church, those questions aren't always welcomed or aren't always answered very well sometimes, especially if they're coming from a professing believer. I think it's one thing if you get those questions from a non-believer, but to have a believer, you know, in the church asking, hey, you know, I'm just, not that I'm not sure about Jesus, but I'm not sure about this element or this this part, or I need some clarification. And so those doubts, those, those sort of intellectual doubts about my faith started to, to boil over, and I really wasn't sure what to do. And so finally, you know, I, I decided to meet with Dave, who was my youth pastor at the time. You know, to be quite frank, these, some, these Sunday school answers that, you know, people throw at these questions just aren't working for me. They're not sufficing. You know, it's not, well, Jesus is the answer. Well, yeah, that might be true, but why, you know, is it the answer? Why is, you know, whatever. And so Dave took those seriously, thankfully, and, you know, he didn't patronize me in in handling those doubts. He was actually really glad, you know, that I came into his office that day and talked to him about it. And so it wasn't that all of my questions and doubts were, were answered neatly and nicely into this perfect package, but rather I got a better understanding of God's complexity, God's sovereignty, and, and understanding sort of that narrative, that biblical narrative and, and, and God's purpose and God's, you know, like I said, complexity uh, almost put me in my place in a sense, but also gave me a better way to, to tackle these questions as they came up. So 
another factor in dealing with my intellectual doubt was some personal doubts in my faith that, that came up. And, and these were at different times in life, but you know, growing up I was raised in a single parent household. Uh, my mom did a phenomenal job and continues to do a phenomenal job um, at just being a wonderful mother to me. And when I was two years old, uh, my dad was incarcerated uh, for some significant mistakes that he made. And as a two-year-old, you know, you don't quite understand the significance of that. And it wasn't until I was around 10 years old when another trial hit, and that was when I was diagnosed with the tumor in my skull. And so when this hit, you know, I started, even just at 10 years old, started to look at my life and, and, and being able to think more critically, look at the lives of my peers and say, wait a minute, you know, I have a great mom who does great things, you know, bust her butt working 50-hour weeks to support me, and God, God does this. And, and it was in that, though, that the good began to come out slowly but surely. And so with the tumor, I did eventually have an operation. They were able to remove it without many complications other than losing partial sight in my left eye. And with the loss of that sight, and this is, you know, might be a cheesy analogy, but I feel like I gained a better sight in my faith. And that was when I came to Christ, was his sovereignty over that situation. And in that trial, my mom, rather than running away from God or questioning God, I think that really pushed her to, to God and to, to the church. And that's when we started to become regular members of TBC. Looking back and looking at that time, it was something that, that really pivoted my mom and then myself into, um, into our faith and into a relationship with God. And, and even looking today, I look at the situation with my dad and realize, you know, he has, he's safe. He has an associate's degree. He has a relationship with Christ. My mom has a relationship with Christ. She's in a, she's in a godly marriage. You know, I, we've been blessed with, 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 with my stepdad in my life. And so all of those things would not have happened had these trials not happened. You know, had my dad not been incarcerated, you know, where would he be today? Would he be alive? You know, would he be a Christian? The way God worked in all of that is just incredible to me and to this day. You know, I look back at that suffering and in that sort of time of doubt when all those trials just felt piled on and go, you know, that was, that was meaningful. There was purpose behind that. So I want to set the tone like in this series, the next few weeks, that uh, the church has to be a place that embodies what Jude 22 says, where it says, and have mercy on those who doubt. So even the Bible tells the church it's got to be a place where there's mercy for those people that doubt. And so that means that's an invitation for you to be honest about these things as we walk through these coming weeks of the series. Uh, go ahead and do your um, questions there at your tables. Go ahead and have some discussion.